Hello, and welcome to the Alchemy of Art podcast with your host, Addie Hirschton. Join us as we share folk tales and true stories about artists and the creative process. Our quote of the day was said by Miles Davis. He said, do not fear mistakes. There are none. Hello everyone, my name is Addie Hirschton. I'm a contemporary impressionist painter, art instructor, author, and public speaker. The purpose of this podcast is to share stories about art and the creative process to inspire you and help you move forward. And also, yes, I will admit, help myself be inspired and move forward. On the show, I interview artists from a wide variety of mediums so that we can learn from each other's processes and philosophy. Today's podcast features an interview with the photographer Emily Schwenk and the story of imperfection in quilts. (laughs) Okay, announcements. Gosh, I feel like there's so much going on in my life because I'm considering buying a new house specifically to have a art studio that I can open to the public. So I've just been doing lots of house hunting and it's really fun, but scary because, you know, any change is a little scary. Um, And just all wrapped up in that. And then of course we've got the holidays are right around the corner. And so I've done things like put some paintings uh, sale on line on my website, azurefineart.com, and um, I'm just kind of preparing for uh, all that will happen in the whirlwind that is the holidays, including I always get a lot of commissions during that time. So um, the earlier you get them into me, the better. If any of you are one of those, it's going to order a commission right before the holidays. The earlier, the better for me. Um, what else do I got going on? Um, so on my uh, online classes, as I've announced several times, I've got one that's free on alchemyofpainting.com that's called How to Paint a Rose. And in a couple of days, I will have one that's called Seven Secrets to Success for Artists. And that's another free course on alchemyofpainting.com. I'm going to talk about it more in the next podcast recording. Um, And then very soon in the next few weeks, that freebie, The Seven Secrets to Success, is going to lead into one that's a paid one called Start Selling Your Artwork. I feel really strongly that, and Emily and I talk about this in the interview today, that if you if you value yourself as an artist and you value the work and materials that you've um, put into your creations, that your artwork has worth. And if you are giving it out to people, you need to actually be selling it, not just giving it away all the time. Um, So in the course that I'm working on, the Start Selling Your Artwork one, it's all about how to do that um, in a professional way and all the many different directions you can go. OK, 
Okay, so what else do I have going on? This Saturday, November 4th, at the Indie Reads Bookstore, I'm going to be doing a signing of my children's books and um, doing a reading with Teresa, who's um, the author of Dennis and His American Trunk that I illustrated. So we're going to be reading several different books. It's going to be a great fun time. So that's November 4th at 4 p.m. Indie Reads Bookstore. Uh, also in the month of November at the Monon Coffee Company in Broad Ripple, I have a show up that is scenes from my neighborhood. And it was really fun to put together. It's just a little coffee shop show, but it was, just, it was great to have the challenge of putting together specific scenes from the area. So if you're interested, it is going to be up in the month of November. All right, so a little bit about Emily. Uh, Emily Schwenk is a professional photographer, and she's been a professional photographer for um, 20 years. And she is a pro, folks. She is so good. I've had her photograph my family and come into my art studio to do you know, professional shots. And she has a, a great way of, you know, getting good photos of the people, but also getting them to react with each other and, um, and really show their personality. <laughs> Emily's website is rainscliffphotography.com. That's rain, like it's raining down, cliffsphotography.com. Without further ado, here's my interview with Emily Schwenk. Okay, we're rolling. Um, Emily Schwenk, welcome to my house. <laughs> Thanks, it's great to be here. Okay, I'm going to start in on my first question. What is the story of how you became an artist? Um, this is always, I think, the hardest question when people ask me this. Because I'm not sure that there was a set point in my life where um, I knew I was going to be an artist. I was raised around a lot of art. Um, I spent a good portion of my childhood overseas and visited a lot of the great places of art in Europe. Um, and that affected me in a, in a big way, uh, in a very classical way. And then I started doing photography when I was 13. And it was really instantaneous for me, that photography was a medium that I felt I could express myself. Uh, I was in ninth grade. We were doing darkroom work because um, I'm of an age where I've now moved into the digital age, but I um, did many, many years of film photography. And it just was remarkable to me that I could kind of catch these moments and watch them come alive and that they told little stories. So I feel like I began that process in the ninth grade and it really continued through having a great photography teacher in high school and then going to college and finding a community of photographers in college who fostered that and then it just never stopped. Okay. Okay. And so why photography over other mediums? I mean, you could have gone into painting or sculpture or, I mean, there's lots of other ways we can express ourselves visually. What is it about photography itself? There's something about capturing the story and translating it with um, film or digital film, so to speak, um, that really speaks to me. 
sometimes I find it hard to express exactly why. It was just a natural thing for me. There was a photograph I took in ninth grade of my sister putting on mascara. And I always think of that as a, as a certain turning point. There are photographs in my life that I've taken that I see as turning points in my life as a, as an artist. And that image, being able to sort of capture that moment in time and sort of the grace of her body leaning forward and the, the realisticness if that's a word, the realism, <laughs> the, how realistic it was, um, as well as the fact that it seemed also otherworldly. It kind of took on its own flavor when you captured it. Mm-hmm. Then I started looking at photographers and I fell in love with photographs. And, and I, I still look a lot at photographers. And so falling in love with photography led me to just have that as a medium. Um, I've tried other mediums. I've played with them. I think all artists should play with other mediums, but it's always going to be photography for me. Holding a camera is an extension of my body. (laughs) And I've noticed that that is quite literally true because you always have it with you. (laughs) Okay. So you specialize in photos of people. Um, What draws you to that subject over other things like nature buildings? Um, and have you gone through phases where maybe it wasn't all about people? So people have drawn me in from day one. Well, like the photograph of my sister that I took when I was in ninth grade. There's When I was in college, I was a double major in English and art, and I'm a big reader. And a genre of literature that I love is magical realism. And to me, photographs can walk this line between fact and fiction and then sort of ultimately become a truth. And because there's this line for me between fact and fiction that that becomes a truth, photographing people tells stories that are both real and unreal and give us more. And so I can take a photograph and it can mean one thing to someone else and mean something else to the next person, and it means something else entirely to me. And there's a a magic to that. And the other thing about people is that I love people. I love them. They're so flawed. They're so imperfect, and that makes them incredibly beautiful. There's, There's just such a humanity in us. I mean, we are so amazingly human. And to photograph that and that struggle to be who we are, it's just, it's just what I was meant to do. I, I just feel that's what I was meant to do. Um, I do sometimes photograph other things because I'm a photographer and I go places and I see beautiful vistas and I see interesting things. But um, as has been pointed out to me by many friends and colleagues, the pictures that I take still somehow seem to relate to people. So even if they're not in the image, they're there. It's almost impossible for me to break away from that, even when I try. Yeah, I'm reminded you did one recently. It had a, a colander uh-huh. and the window and the light streaming through it, and I loved that one. Yeah. What was that piece about for you? So it's interesting because I'm putting together a show right now, and there's a series of pieces that are somewhat similar to that, that kind of all go together. And they are pieces that don't necessarily show people or show people very much. Okay. And yet they're still about 
those moments of our lives. And um, the way that I think I see a lot of beauty that not everybody sees. And I think a lot of artists do. I mean, that's what makes us artists. We can see beauty and ugliness that isn't always noticeable to a non-artist eye. And every day I go into my kitchen and every day the light shines on my kitchen table in a certain way at certain points of the day. And I see that beauty and it just translates in a lot of ways to the love and beauty I have for my kitchen, which is an imperfect space. <laughs> um, it's constantly under construction, but it's also constantly crowded with people and food and noise, which is very special to me. Although, ironically, that picture is a very quiet feeling picture. It's a picture that really radiates peacefulness. Yeah. Um, but that's also part of it all. Yeah. Yeah. I think you or somebody referred to your house as the borough, and I thought that was perfect and hilarious. Okay, so when you have a client, because you do lots of things like photographing weddings, photographing families, senior pictures, lots of portrait pictures of people, what are the steps you go through to close that sale? And once they've hired you, how do you deal with that client? professionally for our, our folks who might be interested in this as a profession itself. So, yeah, so the bulk of my livelihood is from clients and I love working with clients and it takes a while, I think, to find your stride with that. And you need to be kind to yourself and you need to talk to other artists. It's really important to work with clients. Um, for me, uh, my clients will get my name either from former clients or they go to my website, or they follow my Instagram. And it's an interesting thing because my website tends to be more commercially based, um, where I, I put a lot of um, images from working with clients, where my Instagram is a mix of working with clients and doing the, the personal kind of fine artwork. Um, they, I get different reactions from the different people, <laughs> different reactions from where people find me. So clients who find me from, say, my Instagram are looking for someone who's going to have more of an artistic lean to their images. Now, I get that with my website, too, but that's definitely like a more professional level kind of stuff where it's a little bit less intimate than the images I post on Instagram. Uh, both kinds of clients I like, but it's great when I talk to somebody when they contact me, which these days is mostly like on email. You know, they'll say, hey, I got your name from so-and-so or I saw your pictures and I'd like to hire you. I try to get a feeling for what they're looking for. That's the first thing I ask. I'm like, well, um, where did you see me? What are you looking for? How many people are in your family or what sort of event is it? And I get a feeling for who they are and what they're looking for. There are very rare occasions where someone will say that they're looking for something and because the work I do is a lot more of a natural, um, candid style of portraiture, um, there are occasional times where I say, you know, you're not actually looking for me. You're looking for someone else and let me recommend some people to you. And I've never had a bad response to that because the truth is that I want that client to be happy. And if they're not looking for what I'm doing, then they're not going to be happy with the end process. So when I, I meet with a client or I talk to them on the phone, we discuss what they're looking for. We discuss different locations they might want to photograph at. We talk about their family. Um, we talk about any challenges that might be in their family, um, whether they want to include a pet or whether they have a very young child or sometimes if they have a child or a family member who's special needs, which is something that I, I photograph a lot. Um, we just kind of talk over those things to depend on the 
best location to photograph them. They put down a deposit and then we meet, we do the shoot. And the way that I work, and this is pretty common for photographers, is that the, the balance of that shoot is due when I finish the shoot itself. Um, now, some photographers do it when you deliver the end edited product, but not all do. Um, and that's, I think, again, uh, something that you have to maneuver yourself. See what feels comfortable. Talk to other people. Weigh the pros and cons of them. It's It can be sometimes challenging because you're putting yourself out there as an artist to photograph their family. And the way that you see them is not necessarily the way they see themselves. Mm -hmm. And so you walk this line between what is it that they want and what is it that you see and finding those where those two things meet. And there's always going to be times for me when I deliver a set of photographs where there's an image that I love that my clients like either doesn't like or just doesn't love as much as I do. And I love it because artistically, maybe it's a really lovely image, but they don't like the way that they look in it or they just feel like it's, you know, it's just not the, the image that they love. And the image that they love is one that I wouldn't have picked. And that's okay. I have to let go of that and just be like, what matters is my client is happy and that I'm doing the work I love. Yeah, and I just thought of another question to throw in there, and that is, um, so from my experience, from the two photo shoots that you've done with me and our family and whatnot, you're really good at putting people at ease and you know getting them to smile and getting them to relax. And do you have any certain tricks that you do to that I didn't notice? <laughs> you were sneaking in there on me. Um, it is really important to me that I get people comfortable and at ease. The first few pictures I take, I always feel like are almost like throwaway pictures. Sometimes they turn out great, but sometimes people are just very stiff and uncomfortable and you have to get that, that point where they're comfortable. Okay. Every single group of people or individual that I photograph is different and it's important for me to try to read them and to get a feeling for that because some of them are going to do better if I make them laugh and some of them are going to do better if I just talk to them. Um, I do have some tricks of the trade that I use a lot of times when I'm trying to get people to relax and like talk to each other. And I think I might've used this with you. I tell them to talk about food because people look super happy when they talk about food. It's true. <laughs> Just start talking about food and everybody like lights up. Like, what are you having for dinner? Well, you get really happy looking. Um, <laughs> and especially with young children, you have to stop them from giving you that sort of awful fake smile that young children are trained to do. Mm -hmm. Adults do it too, but you can say to them, hey, your smile looks fake and they'll tone it down mm -hmm. um, most of the time. But children, you have to start talking to them. And for me, it's a lot about asking them questions about themselves and things that they like. What did you do today? Did you, oh, you went to school? What's your favorite thing about school? Who's your favorite friend at school or, you know, what's your favorite class or you have, do you have a pet or what's your favorite color? And if they're two years old, you'll just be like, Hey, I'm just going to make funny faces at you. <laughs> um, it's every person is a little different. Engaging with them to me is the answer. So talking to them so that they start to feel like you're almost just hanging out. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So is it possible to be an introvert and be a photographer <laughs> of portrait? Um, I would say yes. And here's why I would say yes, because I know introverts. Um, I'm like, I must be an extrovert, but I know introverts who are photographers. And here's what happens to them is that they often go into a shoot and they just change persona. 
and I have seen it happen and I've seen it with my own self when maybe there's other things going on in my life that are distracting me or that I'm worried about, or maybe I'm just tired or I'm not having a good day. I walk into that shoot and it's like, no, now I'm a photographer and I sort of turn it on. It's not that it's fake. It's that it's a different compartment in yourself. Mm. And I see that with introverts who are photographers too. Um, and you know, sometimes I see them where they're, they're so introverted and then you put them straight into that situation and they just light up. And I don't know if it's, sometimes there's a security in holding your camera. Um, certainly for me, where maybe I, I was to get in front of a big group of people and give a talk, I would be an absolute nervous wreck. I'd be shaking. I'd be really scared, but I can walk into a wedding where I have to direct large groups of people and be very outgoing and make them comfortable because they're in a stressful situation. And I'm, I feel great. I'm not scared at all. So I think there's this compartment in us that we flip on. Now, there are different photographers for different things. And there are photographers who say to me, like, I can't shoot weddings. It's too stressful. Or I don't like to do family groups because, because they don't feel like they can do that sort of thing. And that's okay because there's actually so many kinds of photography, just like in any art. There's so many different ways of being that artist. But I do see introverts just sort of click on. It's it's actually really neat. Okay. Okay. That was the longest answer ever. I know. No, perfect. <laughs> um, I'm wondering, too, if, have you ever had one of those horrible moments where you lost the photos? And maybe it might have been more likely to happen back in the day when we had the film and it, it could so easily you know, chemically mess up or be exposed to the sun or whatever might happen. Um, and do you have any precautions to board against somebody's precious wedding photos <laughs> being a uh, poof gone? <laughs> um, that is a very scary thing. I have not had them go away entirely. I've had situations where something went wrong with like a half a roll of film and we did lose some special images. And that's awful. That's awful. And I think every photographer who shot film had an experience like that because you can take all the precautions in the world and you can still have an error. Um, it's a lot less likely to happen with digital photography. Um, but I've had situations where I shot a portrait session and I just made a stupid mistake and maybe I shot the whole thing at the wrong ISO. And there are times when you can repair that and there are times where you can't. I've never had, knock on wood, um, I've never had an entire wedding be ruined or like a, a substantial amount where it caused a problem. Now I do a lot less weddings than I used to. I focus on family groups. I've had once or twice where I had something go wrong with a family session where I said to them, you know what, can, do you have time this week? We're going to reshoot that session. And I've done that. Um, it doesn't happen very much because I think you get into the habit, like any other job really of double checking and double checking. And because I take so many images in a shoot. I, I take a lot. I kind of overshoot. So it's there's a lot more chance for me to catch a mistake. So I might like, oh, I made a mistake here, but that's okay. I can fix that, and we've got time during the shoot to fix that. Okay. Okay. What's the main message you are trying to convey with your work? <laughs> Big, weighty question. <laughs> um, this, this is a weighty question, but it's a good question, and it's one that I've spoken to many people about because there's a lot of instinct in what I do. A lot of what I photograph, I photograph on instinct, like a gut reaction to things. 
And so discussing it with other artists, which is something that every artist needs to be doing on a regular basis, is talking about their work with other artists. Not always talking about it in a sort of deep, reverent way, but in a sometimes like in a a silly or a fun way, you know, because you get as much information as when you're talking about it reverently. But um, I think that the truth of the matter is, is it's a little bit like that magical realism that I talked about before. There is this line where I feel like I'm telling true stories, truthful stories that are also sort of mystical at the same time. And there's an undercurrent for me, I think, because um, I'm sort of a natural optimist and I find a lot of beauty in things. I find beauty in ugly things. Well, they're not ugly to me. I think they're <laughs> ugly to other people. I find beauty in those things and I find I find a great deal of beauty in the world. And I, I, I hate to use this word, but it's the word that has to be used. I think my work is a lot about love. And I've had this talk um, with people about the connection of love in my work and I think we think love is always like a romantic love or it's a sort of kittenish word, you know, like it's hearts and valentines and pink and sweet, but love is a ferocious thing. It's, it's actually not sweet. And the love that people have, the deep love that people have for things is ferocious. And when I photograph the connection of a child with nature, for instance, that child is in love with nature. It is reacting with love and wonder and curiosity. And when I photograph the love between two people, whether they're friends or family, the parents, um, all, all kinds of things, that love is, it's a ferocious thing. And, um, I think that I love the world, which sounds awfully cheesy to keep using the word love, but I feel like I wish there was a bigger word because we use the word love so offhandedly. My work is about wonder and beauty and love. You're not too cheesy for me. <laughs> I'm a total cheese ball. You, you had talked a few minutes ago um, before we started rolling about photodysmorphia and you and your friends talking about that. What the heck is that? Explain that to everybody. So um, a very close friend of mine and I talk about that a lot because there can be this point and we call it photodysmorphia because we're photographers, but it absolutely goes across the board for any artist. Um, dysmorphia is a term we hear a lot with body politics and about how you know, someone can look in the mirror and they have body dysmorphia, which means they just don't see their themselves as other people see them. They think that they're fat. They think they're ugly. They think they're slovenly. They think all these really negative things about themselves when in fact, that's not the truth, but they l are literally not able to see. Like, it's not even like they're trying to get compliments. It's not like that. They actually can't see their own beauty. So what can happen as an artist is that you can't see your own beauty and worth. And you have to fight that. I don't know any artist who doesn't succumb to that at some point. Um, for me, most of the time, it's something I can fight back on. And uh, my friend and I who joke about it, she struggles a lot with it. She struggles a lot with the sense of worthiness in her pictures. Um, and she can't see their, their technical proudness. They, she can't see their beauty. She can't see that they are worthwhile. Um, she often doesn't see that she's worth being paid. And for that, that's a big one for artists. We have this sort of fear that our work isn't worthwhile enough to be paid. 
And it is. It is worthwhile enough to be paid. And you need to listen to the people around you who are telling you the good and the bad. Because good friends will say, like, that piece is not as strong as your other pieces. Maybe they won't tell you, hey, that piece sucks. They'll, they'll be a little bit nicer. They'll be like, that is, I don't like that piece as much as I like this other piece. Because this other piece has this power in it. And this piece is not as powerful. And, and you can have that discussion. You can't only hear this piece isn't as powerful and ignore the part where you have good work. We all have good and bad work. That doesn't mean as an artist, your work isn't good. You have to fight back from that feeling of looking at your work and not seeing that it's worthwhile and it's worth being paid for, which is it's hard as an artist to talk about money because there's this idea that artists should be doing this just for the love of it. And of course, I photograph for the love of it because anybody who knows me knows I have like a problem. I just take too many <laughs> pictures. Um, but I also deserve to be paid for the work I do. And every artist deserves to be paid for that work. You have to fight against that art dysmorphia and accept that you're worthwhile. Ah, mm. oh, right on. Yes. Yeah. And I'm reminded when I was in college, I had a great uh, art instructor, painting instructor. His name was Tim Ford. This was at Appalachian State University. But he talked one day about how artists will oftentimes not recognize what their best work is. So he'll find, you know, one of his students might come in and they'll have two paintings and he'll be like, uh, and, and they'll say to him, this one is awesome. Look, I'm really proud of this one. And this one is not so much, but, and, and he's like, no, 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 no. The one you think is the bad one is the one that's really strong and really good. And he theorized that maybe that was because the work that the artist was deeming not as cool is actually complete and it's finished and that the work that you're still focused on and you're you're like oh yeah everybody look at this look at this actually that artist eye in you is, is a little intrigued still because something needs to snap into place a little bit more needs to happen in order to bring it to completion so it's kind of related to what you're saying but um, just a, another take on it that I experienced. And I, I feel like I've seen that a number of times over the years. Have you seen something like that too? Yeah, I feel like um, as a photographer, because our process is slightly different than being a painter, sometimes it has to do with like a body of work. And so you're like, you're, you are like still unfinished. That body of work is unfinished. So a, a really great example is that um, when I'm putting together work for like a show, I have to have second opinions. I can't make that that process of narrowing down images without oh. help. And so this just this past weekend, um, I was getting help from an artist friend and, and we were going through like 20 images that I really needed to get down to 10. And one of the things we were looking at was the strength of the images together because of a similar kind of thing, what you're saying, like, okay, these images we're taking out, not because maybe they're not good images. It's because they're not a finished body of work. There's a finished body of work that needs to go with those, but it's not the one that you're showing right now. And so I'd be like, oh, really? Because I kind of love that that image. And, you know, he'd be like, sure, but it's not the image that should be in this body of work. Okay. And so it's a kind of similar thing. Um, I think that having that second opinion is so big because it is so often true that an image that I think is really terrific, other people are kind of like, and then they're like, but this image, this image is powerful. And, and, you know, people will say to me, oh my gosh, this image makes me think of this or that, or of just different feelings that it invokes. Um, and it often surprises me what that image is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, 
it sounds like you're pretty good at letting go and saying, okay, this, this person, they're going to have a different interpretation or a different, different opinion on which is the best one and whatnot. I sometimes struggle with the viewer understanding what I'm trying to say. And, and if I, I, I'm trying to communicate something oftentimes. And if, if they don't get it, <laughs> then I'm like, no, no, no. Okay. I'll write more of an artist statement by it. I'll like try to explain it more because this is what it's about. And then, um, and then there's moments where I have to say, okay, I'm letting go. It, they're going to have their own, they're going to look at it with their own eyes and they're from their own experience. I gotta let go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's so interesting to me. Letting go, I think is pretty easy for me. And I, I really think it's because I had a couple of amazing professors when I was in college who were so incredibly tough. They were so hard on us. And, and so, um, because I write as well as do photography, I had these writing instructors who would just be like, that line sucks. Like, take that out. You got to just chop it out. And I'd be like, no, that is a beautiful line. What are you talking about? And they'd be like, mm-mm chop it. And then they would, they would also teach me to fight back and be like, no, I'm keeping that line. And here's why. And sometimes I'd be right. And sometimes they'd be right. But in the end, we would, you know, we would have like a, a piece of work, whether it was a photograph or say like a poem. And I would, you know, we talk about what they meant. And then we would say, well, somebody is going to interpret this differently. Mm-hmm. And in the beginning, it was really hard for me to let go of that interpretation that I was trying to convey. But over time, I've really gotten to the point where somebody like, um, when I'm at a show and somebody comes up to me and asks me about a piece of work and they'll say, well, tell me about this. And I'll say, well, what do you get out of it? Because I actually think their reaction is often more relevant than the actual fact of the photograph. Um, which to me is again, that idea between fact and truth. There's an inherent truth in the image. Mm-hmm. The facts are irrelevant. Um, so I would rather hear the interpretation than foist my own version on them. Because art does speak to each of us in a different way. Right. And that's an okay thing. And I don't know why. Well, I do know why. Those professors helped me learn to let go of those pieces of work. Whether it was writing, whether it was a photograph, they said... It's not yours anymore. Let it go. You wrote that. You finished it. You took that photograph. You finished it. Now you put it in the world. It doesn't belong to you. And I'm okay with that. I, I really am. I'm okay with that. Um, occasionally, you know, uh, when I travel, because of some of the places that I've traveled in particular, um, it can be relevant that I say, like, well, that was taken in Belfast because like Belfast is a certain kind of place and it might be relevant to that image. Um, if I feel that it's really important to convey a certain message, I will try to add that into my title so that it affects their view with the title somewhat. But if they get their own interpretation, it's okay. I'm, I'm really okay. They're my babies and I just send them in the world. You know? <laughs> yeah. The, the baby birds have fledged the nest. Mm-hmm. Another kind of weighty question I have for you, Emily, is what advice would you give to your younger artist self? I love this question. I love it's hearing what everybody has to say about this question. <laughs> um, so <laughs> I actually, um, I knew you'd ask this question. I thought a lot about this question mm-hmm. because I think it is a really hard, hard question. Mm-hmm. Um, 
there's, I think there's two big things I would say. One is don't let go of having a community. Like I think when I left college up until the point that I was able to get a studio and be back with a community of artists, um, I spent a period of time with no art community and that is really damaging to artists. So you, we do not live in like an attic studio in Paris by ourselves hiding in there, you know, like you, we actually must have interaction with other artists. I don't believe that you can grow as an artist without interaction with other artists. Um, I wish that I had been able to, to get back into that community sooner than I did. Mm-hmm. And I know that I was doing a lot of different things and yet there, there's sort of this like 10 years where I felt a little bit lost, mm-hmm. um, without a community. Um, now, and like right now I don't have a studio outside my home, but I still have created such a large community of artists and social media helps a lot with that. Um, social media can get a lot of bad rap, but the truth is that, um, it keeps you very connected. So even like on Instagram, I follow so many artists on Instagram because I want to see what are people doing in the art world and what are they doing every day that they're sharing with me and how does that affect me? And that's a community in its own way. And then there's, you know, the community in Indianapolis, which is a a strong, vibrant art community and staying connected with that community is the biggest thing I would have told my younger self. And the second thing that I would have said is, learn to laugh at yourself a lot sooner because it's really the best thing you can do for your art. You know, you've got to not take yourself so seriously because art is serious business. It's hugely serious. And at the same time, it's a, it's a bit ridiculous to walk around solemn all the time about it. Laugh about it. Laugh about the challenges, laugh about the successes. And, you know, and even when you're talking about serious stuff, it's still kind of funny. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, I would say don't take yourself quite so seriously. Okay. So I can't believe this is our last question. And that is, what is your favorite art book or story? And of course it can be a personal story or one from an artist of the past that you admire. So it's funny. There's, um, there's a lot of art books that have affected me that, that changed my life in a lot of ways. You know, I am both, uh, as a photographer and as a writer, I think that the only way that you can be a really good success is if you continue to see what people are doing. So, you know, I look at photography books and I, and I like, again, Instagram, great example of being able to find artists and like follow stories and see what people are doing. And as a writer, I think you need to be a reader. Um, so there's so many that I could point out, um, that I feel that it's always important for me to, to comment on both Paul Strand and Henry Cartier-Bresson and Sally Mann, because they were probably the three biggest influences stylistically on the work that I do. And, um, uh, well, and Robert Frank. Um, and I think anybody who looks at their work and then looks at my work would be like, oh, <laughs> yeah. But if I was going to pick one story to talk about in particular, it's um, would be A Movable Feast, which is by Hemingway. And ironically, I really despise Hemingway. I can't stand his books. It's the only book that I like, and I absolutely love it. Okay. Um, 
It's a, if you've never read it, it's the true story of when Hemingway was living in Paris and he was surrounded by Gertrude Stein and Picasso and T.S. Eliot and Duchamp and all of these artists. And they're hanging out all the time. And Alice B. Toklas, who is Gertrude Stein's partner, is cooking them food and they're poor and they're helping each other. And they're, um, there's, there's this just group of people who are getting along and not getting along and hanging out and talking and eating food and living this life. And it's one of the truest accounts of a group of artist friends that I've read. And I love it because at different points in my life, I've had different communities of artists who were important to me. And it always seems to boil down to that sitting around a kitchen table, sitting around a restaurant table, sitting around a table because food's important and uh, <laughs> because artists are always hungry. Uh, you know, just sitting around tables with glasses of wine or coffee and talking about what we do and fighting it out and laughing it out. And to me, the book tells that story. And you can, you can as an artist, read that book and look at your own life and say, what I'm doing right now with these people, these other artists of all genres is just as important as these people who came before me. We're the same and our stories are the same and our excitement is the same and our struggles are the same. We're the same. And just because we remember them now in history as important moments, we are history. We're making those important moments. Mm. And so when I read that book, I think this is us. This is us right now fighting this battle to be an artist. And it's an awesome battle. <laughs> here, here. <laughs> Yay, wonderful. Oh, Emily, thank you so much for coming and sharing your thoughts with me. I knew it was going to be great, and it was. Awesome. Thank you. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. It was very fun. Oh, wasn't that a wonderful interview with Emily? Um, let's go back for a moment to the quote that I started with at the beginning of the podcast. Do not fear mistakes. There are none. And that was said by Miles Davis, who was a jazz musician. Um, I, I wanted to talk about this for a minute because Emily touched on it when she was talking about how imperfect people are and you know, it, life is so messy and yet it's beautiful at the same time. And when we create our artwork, I feel that it's important to, to continue that train of thought onto the artwork itself and not see it as, you know, as inherently flawed, but in the imperfections, there is a beauty. Think of it like Miles Davis, the jazz musician. You know, he's doodling around with all these notes, and he's saying, "There's not a mistake in it. It's it's just moving. It's it's life, <laughs> and that's what we want. We want the messiness of life in our artwork, and." Today's story, you know, I usually share a story from my book, The Alchemy of Art Stories for the Classroom, with you, but um, we've used up almost all of those stories. Today's not, um, I'm not going to share a story per se, but I'm going to share a, a concept that quilters 
do. What a lot of quilters design into their creation is one bit of imperfection. And here's what I mean. So they'll, they'll have a, a pattern, you know, um, say it's the traditional wedding ring design, you know, it's, it's a very specific pattern that they are creating over and over again. Well, they might break up the pattern in just one little spot by having, uh, a, you know, a, a little block of red where it should be white. And the idea is that you're bringing that imperfection of life into the piece because nothing is perfect. And as one quilter told me years ago, she said, God is perfect, but I am not. So this is why we do this tradition. Um, you know, so one way of looking at it, but I love the idea of life itself is not perfect and we can't expect perfection in our artwork. So maybe mess it up a little bit. You know, I, I'm kind of reminded too of when um, my boyfriend's hair is like too straight and perfect. I, I just have to like <laughs> mess it up and he hates it. <laughs> but like, I just can't stand it when it's looking too nice. It's It's gotta be messy. It's gotta be alive. <sighs> All right. So go forth, my friends, and be alive and be messy. And don't fear those mistakes. This concludes our Alchemy of Art podcast for today. May these stories about art and the creative process inspire you. May you find your voice. You have been listening to the Alchemy of Art podcast. To find out more about Addie Hirshton and her work, go to azirfineart.com. That's A-Z-H-I-R-F-I-N-E-A-R-T.com.